Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. If you are visiting today, we just started the book of Philippians as a summer series last week, and we spent most of the time in the book of Acts, chapter 16, looking at the founding of the church in Philippi. We saw the conversion. You remember who we saw? We saw Lydia. Remember, she was the, the wealthy woman who was trading uh, fabrics, and she was converted to Christ. We saw a woman who was a, a, a girl who was enslaved and oppressed by demons, and we saw her delivered from those demons and very likely drawn into the church. And we saw the Philippian jailer, uh, kind of a blue-collar man who, on the verge of suicide, was delivered from his sin. He was converted. He was baptized. His family believed in Christ. His family was baptized, and that was the birth of the church in Philippi. And so now we're going to look at Paul's prayer here today, and I'm, I'm titling the sermon, Praying with Paul. I get that title from a book by Don Carson by the same name, Praying with Paul. And I've got three points, three things. There's a lot we could talk about in verses 3 to 11 of chapter 1, but I'm, I'm going to look at three things in particular. The points are this, praise God for gospel partnerships. That's point number one, praise God for gospel partnerships. Number two, praise God for gospel perseverance. Praise God for gospel perseverance. And finally, number three, petition God for gospel fruitfulness. Petition God for gospel fruitfulness. So the, the first thing I want to focus on is this idea of gospel partnership. So let me just read verses 1 through 11, and then we will, we will dive in. And this is the word of the Lord, uh, Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, this is a fantastic passage. I, I would just encourage you on this point, and I'm, I'm trying to challenge myself on this point. If you feel like your prayer life is, let's be honest, a bit of an embarrassment. Anybody in that group? I'm in that group. It's, it's shameful. If you want to improve your prayer life, if you want to get better, uh, let's follow the guidelines of how Paul prays. And we, we need to learn how to pray with Paul because what we're going to see is Paul's prayers are passionate, 
They're constant. And they have different priorities sometimes than my prayers have. And I want us to learn from Paul's emphases and priorities for us to shape the way that we pray for others. So again, the first point is praise God for gospel partnerships. And look with me again at verses 3 and three through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now that, that word partnership, your translation may say fellowship. It is the, the Greek word for fellowship. Now, we've got to talk for a second about the word fellowship because, uh, you know, you're growing up, you have, a, you have the fellowship hall at your church, right? And uh, you, you've got uh, the ice cream social. Do they still do those anymore? I remember in the 90s there was a lot of ice cream socials. And you, you would be there and you'd have your ice cream and you'd have fellowship, right? You go to a meal with some Christians and you guys had fellowship. Can we admit that we have cheapened the word fellowship down to basically small talk, chit-chat between, you know, after service? Now listen, there is nothing wrong with catching up and talking. That is part of being a Christian family and that's absolutely right. But this word fellowship means a lot more than we think it means today. And can I give you a, an example of the word fellowship and what it really means? You, you're going to know this. Some of you are going to nerd out in just a second. I'm about to go Lord of the Rings. Are you ready? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands for who are the Lord of the Rings nerds in the room. But I, I don't, I'm, I'm not holding that against you if you are. That's a good thing. Uh, the first Lord of the Rings, remember it's called the Fellowship of the Ring. That's not about nine people having coffee or tea and talking about the, the day's events. That, that is something else. Uh, Tolkien is using the word fellowship in the biblical sense in that, in that movie. And so what, what you have is, I got, I got to, I'm not a Lord of the Rings nerd, so I'm going to have to read this. Forgive me. Uh, I don't have all the information in my head. But I'm, I'm going to read this. This is from R. Kent Hughes, and he's summarizing the basics of the fellowship of the ring. Just, just listen. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's fellowship of the ring rides upon this reality of biblical fellowship, this, this use of the word. The fellowship of the ring <clears throat> is made up of individuals of disparate origin and ridiculous diversity that exceed any of our ethnic or social differences. You have four hobbits, tiny beings with large, hairy, shoeless feet. You know that's true. Frodo Baggins and his friends Merry, Sam, and Pippin. Uh, two men, warriors of the first rank, always dressed for battle. Boromir of Gondor and Aragorn, son of Arathorn, king of Gondor. Some of you know what I'm about to say next, and I question you. Uh, one wizard, Gandalf, the ancient nemesis of evil and a repository of wisdom and supernatural power. An elf named Legolas, from a, from a fair race of archers of the forest with pointed ears. And a dwarf, Gimli, a stout, hairy, axe-wielding creature from the dark chambers under the mountains. These nine members of the fellowship bore few affinities. You see, they would not make for natural friends, right? If they're just walking down the road, those nine people are not going to end up together. Are they even all people? I'm not sure what they all are. But they're not going to all end up in the same group. The elves and the dwarves were like, uh, he, says, he says here, the elves and the dwarves had a tension between them. They're always making fun of each other. However, the nine very different individuals bound together by their great mission, excuse me, let me, this is important. The nine very different individuals were bound together by their great mission to defeat the forces of darkness and save Middle-earth. And thus they became inseparable and their covenant indissoluble. The man Boromir, despite his lapses, gave his life for the hobbits. 
And the elf and the dwarf came to form a great friendship, so great that Gimli, the dwarf, was inducted into an honored order reserved only for the elf. So if you've at least seen the movies, some of that will be familiar to you. But think about this. These are nine individuals who would not make for natural friends. In fact, they were natural enemies, some of them. And yet, what did they have? They had fellowship. What is this fellowship? It's not chit-chat. The fellowship was they had a common mission, and therefore they teamed together to accomplish something far greater than they that were individually. And that mission that they were on together was a fellowship. It was called the Fellowship of the Ring. And so what you have is, by the end of the books, the characters who have not sacrificed their lives, who are still living, become the deepest and most incredible of friends for, for the rest of their lives. Because why? Out of a true fellowship, giving up natural differences, embracing a mission that is bigger than you, that creates the deepest form of bond between others. I was just looking online at stories uh, from different wars in our history, but I looked at... Uh, uh, I looked at a Vietnam War story, and what, what you saw was there were three men who fought in Vietnam, and one of them was horribly wounded. And the two others helped place him on a helicopter, apparently, and the helicopter left, and the two other men thought that that was the last time they would ever see him. Well, I think it was 50 years or so went by, and all of them had survived, and they found each other online, and I think on one of their birthdays, they were surprised when the two others showed up at a birthday party and they filmed it. And what do you think happened when those men saw each other? Now, late in life, tears started streaming, hands were shaking, they embraced each other deeply. What is that? That's the result of a fellowship together. It's joining together to accomplish something greater than yourself at great cost and sacrifice to yourself. See, we live in a culture that puts the individual above all else. Individualism, right? We've made it an ism. Whenever something becomes an ism other than Jesus, we're probably in trouble, okay? So you have individualism, and we esteem my personal desires, my personal feelings, and I don't care what anyone else thinks or how, how this hurts other people, I'm gonna follow my own desires and become who I think I should be. That is not the biblical picture, ultimately. The biblical picture does not make the individual insignificant, but it says we ultimately, we have to lay aside those impulses in us and submit them to Christ and to live together in harmony to accomplish a great mission, a great fellowship. What was the fellowship, the partnership that Paul and the Philippians were together fighting for? Well, obviously, it was the advance of the gospel. Look with me down at verse 27 of chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Do you kind of see this with the Lord of the Rings analogy? Do you sort of see the language? You've got, you've got opponents, right? There are those who are hostile to the gospel and we must, we must learn how to engage them and love them and win them to Christ. Does it cost Paul 
a lot. Yeah, Paul is in prison right now. He's got a Roman guard very likely on his left, chained, and he's got a Roman guard on his right. As he's writing this letter, he feels the chains around his arms and legs as he's pinning this. This is the cost of the fellowship of the Lord's sufferings. This is why we must be united together, right? So Paul is praising God that we have fellowship together. We have partnership together in the gospel. And this is not something to be afraid of or ashamed of. This is something to glory in, that we get to fight side by side for the truth of the gospel. We get to fight our own sin. We get to proclaim the truth. We get to try to win people to the beauty and love of Christ. And we get to do this together, corporately, as a body. Look with me now, chapter 2, verse 1. You continue to see this unity. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any, that word participation is the word fellowship, same word, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here you see again, if we're in a fellowship together, if, if we are accomplishing a mission together, then to try to start playing comparison games within the group, do you see the problem with that? Now, this is not something I, I think that marks our church. I don't think this is a particular prominent problem in this church, but let's just talk about it anyway, because it, it could be a temptation. If we're together accomplishing a task, almost like a team playing a sport together, if you start competing against each other on the same team, that team will unravel in a moment. It will fall apart. If it's all about me and the glory on me, and look what I've done, look what I can accomplish against this person, look how much better and more talented I am than this person, it is, it is not long before that team unravels. And look at the, the, the wreckage that comes to a church when there is that kind of lack of fellowship or partnership together. Look with me at chapter 4 of Philippians. You see more of this. Chapter 4, verse 1. And just hear the affection of Paul. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So we see there was conflict. In the Philippian church, there was divisiveness at points, and Paul has to step in and say, listen, we're not against each other. We are together. We are fighting the forces of darkness. We are fighting our sinfulness, but we are not fighting one another. We are together, and let us act like we are one in Christ. So, wrapping up this point, we should praise God for the fellowship that we have in Christ, and it is far more than we have often thought. It is being co-laborers in Christ, we have the same salvation, and we have the same mission, and we all play different parts in pushing the gospel forward in this city and around the world. So we should praise God when we pray for gospel partnership. Thank God for the fellowship that we have with one another. Point number two, we should praise God for gospel perseverance, gospel perseverance. 
Look with me at verse 6. And this has got to be a favorite verse of, of many in this room. This is chapter 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So 1-6, I hope you have that verse memorized. It's just a wonderful verse to hold on to. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a wonderful verse of assurance. So we should praise God for gospel perseverance. What does that mean? Well, the process of salvation is not something that we start. So it's something started by God's grace, and therefore it is something that God carries to completion. Think about Lydia last week. Remember, Lydia's outside the city. She's next to a river. It's a little group of women. And Paul and the others show up, and they present the gospel. And what does the verse say? The Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to Paul's message. So salvation, the process of salvation, doesn't begin with me. It begins with the Holy Spirit. God steps in and says, I am going to open your heart to give heed to the message. So I, I know we all have different testimonies in the room. Some of you were converted at age five. Jerry Edgar, who's watching right now, converted. I think he was in the womb, but he says he was five when he was converted. Kind of like John the Baptist, you know, the spirit was there from the beginning, I don't know. But uh, Jerry says he was five. And then some of us may have been a little older, maybe eight or nine. Maybe some of you were early teenagers. I was 16. Scott was in his, I think, early 20s. Some of you may have been adults when you were converted. But, but here's the thing. We all had an experience where at some point the gospel was uninteresting, boring, offensive, not something we wanted to focus on, not something we wanted to think about. Just kind of, let's change the subject. Can we talk about something that matters for five minutes? Let's just get away from the whole Jesus thing. That's just irrelevant. And then what happened? At some point in your life, if you know the Lord, what happened? Suddenly, you started feeling an interest in spiritual things. I mean, for me to have this experience is a miracle. I, you know, I was a kid getting suspended from school. We won't get into all the reasons why. I was the kid getting in trouble a lot. Things were not good. And what happens? Suddenly, I go from being a pretty rebellious kid to suddenly having an interest in wanting to read my Bible, wanting to talk about spiritual things. Where did that originate? It did not originate with me. If it was up to me, I would still not be a believer right now. What happened was God stepped in and intervened in my life, and he began a good work within my heart by his grace, an undeserved good work. So let's start with praising God for beginning a good work in us, if we know the Lord. He began that good work. You know, if, if I began it, I could probably terminate it too. I think it was uh, John MacArthur said, uh, if I could lose my salvation, I would, <laughs> which is a fantastic way of saying it. Paul says, listen, you can't lose what you didn't start. God began the work, God is carrying on the work, and God is going to see to it that that work is completed on the day of the Lord Jesus. You think about John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep, what? 
they hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, greater than all, holds them in his hand. And no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then he says, and I and the Father are one. Throwing in a little Trinitarian theology right there. But Jesus is saying, if you are my sheep, once a sheep, always a sheep. You are not going anywhere because the shepherd died for you specifically. And he will see to it that you are finally saved. So that good work begun in your life is carried on by the Lord. Now there are times where we wish, we wish it was carried on a little bit quicker than it is sometimes. Our struggles are, are real. We're kind of like the stock market, aren't we? We're kind of doing this thing sometimes with our spiritual growth. We go up, we go back down, we have steps forward and steps back. But over time, as a believer, do you not look back if you've been a believer 5, 10, 20, 30 years? Do you not see the Lord's work bringing progress in your life spiritually? Yes, we still fail. Yes, we sometimes still fail royally. But as we look back, do we see the Lord's good, faithful work carrying that work towards completion? Yes. And so we can praise God because we can rest secure in his work in our life. Uh, there's other verses we could turn to. Turn to chapter 2. We'll stay in Philippians for a moment. Chapter 2, you can sort of see how this works out a little bit. 2.12. This does not, before I read this, this does not mean that we are passive in our salvation. That God begins a good work and we kick back in the lawn chair and we sip the lemonade and we just let salvation happen. It's going to be awesome. Just watch it happen. That's not how it happens. We, we um, in sanctification, in growing spiritually, the Lord works in us and we have work to do as well. So look at 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm going to read that part again. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, so we do that. Why do we do that? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there is work to do. This is not legalism. If you're a believer, you are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And now as a believer, there is a lot of work to do. And it's glorious and good work. We are called to work out our salvation, not work for our salvation, which would be legalism. But we are called to work out of our identity in Christ. Work out what God has done for us. And the only reason that we have the desire and the will to do what is right is because what? God is at work in us to will and to work for his good purpose. So we do the working out because God has done the working in. Ultimately, it's all of grace. But, you know, if you get the courage to speak an evangelistic word to an unbelieving friend or family member. I mean, that takes serious courage. When that happens, that little bit of courage that prompts you to speak a word for Christ originated in God's goodness to you. God worked that in you, and then you apply. You work that out. You, you, you walk in that. But the Lord is faithful to hold on to us and to work continually in us until the very end. One more thing here. Look at chapter 3. Verse 
verse 10, Paul says his desire is in 3.10, that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and may share, that's the same word for fellowship, that I might fellowship in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then Paul is quick to say, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. I'm not perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you see that? So God has gotten a hold of us in the gospel and begun a work. And now we strive by God's grace to work that out and to honor him with our life. And he, over time, brings that work closer and closer to completion in the resurrection on the last day. The, the security here should be incredibly reassuring to us. If we could lose our salvation, we would. We can't lose it because we did not originate it. God started it. He continues it. He will complete it. Now, let me just say one more. This is, I got to footnote this lest I be misunderstood. This also does not mean that this doctrine has not been abused. Okay, so this is not the main point of the passage, but I feel like I have to say this before I move on. So growing up in, in sort of the Christian South, I don't know what you call this exactly, the Bible Belt, um, th there, there has been, I think, a, a pretty big abuse of this doctrine, I'm just speaking generally, uh, in the South. And, and here's the way I've seen it abused uh, in, in my lifetime. You'll often have people say, okay, uh, you know, if you're not a Christian, here's the gospel, and here's a prayer to pray, and just kind of repeat after me, and, and say these words, and, and maybe ask Jesus to forgive you, or come into your life or heart. And then when the prayer finishes, the pastor, I've, I mean, I've been in the room when this happens. The pastor gives the person who just prayed that prayer 100% certainty that they are definitely right now a Christian and that no matter how they live from here on out, they are saved. Once saved, always saved. Do you see the danger with how it's being presented in that situation? What's wrong with the picture? How do we know for sure that that good work really did begin in that moment? And the answer is, one of the greatest marks of it being genuine is that it is enduring, that it is persevering, that it continues, that God preserves his own. Um, you know, you all heard of the youth camp experience, but if you come back from youth camp and you're loving Jesus for a couple of weeks and then it just completely disappears and you go exactly back to the life you were living before, I would be very careful about using Philippians 1.6 to give yourself reassurance if your life is not permanently transformed. You see the, the difference here. So what we're saying is genuine ex conversion, genuine new birth will never go away. And if it does go away, the answer would be, then it wasn't really there to start with. And if you're wondering if I'm, I'm, where would you get that? Let me just give you one extra verse on this from 1 John chapter 2, and you may know this verse. This is 1 John 2, 19. It's talking about people leaving the church and really leaving the gospel. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Do you hear that point? Let me read that one more time. These are people leaving Jesus, leaving the gospel, leaving the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have 
continued with us. Do you see that? So a person who abandons Jesus is giving evidence that they never truly knew Jesus. But for those who truly know him, they will continue with Jesus. They will continue with God's people firmly until the end, and God will keep them. So we should praise God in prayer for his persevering work in our lives. Okay, point number three. And this gets into more of the petitionary prayer. Petition God for gospel fruitfulness. We should petition God for gospel fruitfulness. And, and look with me here, verses 8 to 11. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, do you see here, this is obvious. When you reach rock bottom of Paul's prayer request, the target, the ultimate goal, to the glory and praise of God. Right? Now, this should be... 101 for us, but at the bottom of our prayer request, underneath everything, our goal must be that God be praised and glorified. If, if our ultimate goal is for me to be praised and glorified, or for you to be praised and glorified, fundamentally we've messed up in our prayer. It is not prioritized. So at, at the basis of our prayers, God's glory must be the primary motivation at the, at the bottom. But what does Paul pray? This 9 to 11 is worth using as a format to pray for others. I just, it's just wonderful. So look, look with me here. Verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Let's read it one more time. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. I, I don't know what you're tempted to do. I, I'm sort of tempted to fall into the status quo mentality. You know what I'm talking about here spiritually? It's like, okay, like, I've kind of, okay, like, I, th I think I'm kind of okay where I am. I'm just kind of sit here. It's going to be all right. I just kind of get a little lazy spiritually. Paul knows nothing of status quo Christianity. He says, may your love. Now, listen, the Philippians were one of the most loving churches that Paul interacts with in the New Testament. I mean, he just, the Philippians are awesome. They, they are always serving, always giving to Paul. They're always supporting Paul. They're one of the most loving churches across the board in the New Testament. And Paul says what? I am so grateful that you are loving so well. And what does he say? Let your love abound more and more. So if, if you're at a place, and I get to this place too often, where I'm kind of okay with where things are. Status quo. Just kind of, okay, I can just kind of coast right here. I just kind of float with the current right here. Paul will say, no, no, no. Even if you have made it, say, say in the last year you've grown tremendously spiritually. Let's just say there's been real breakthroughs and real growth in your life in the last 12 months. Praise God. Praise God. Thank God for his work in your life. That's what we just spoke about, praising God for his work. But let's not get complacent with what we've done. Let us always be abounding more and more. True love is always growing love. Love never reaches its full capacity in this life. We never love fully enough. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. we are never there. We never arrive there. We're always pushing on, but never arriving fully. And Paul says, listen, let, let our love grow constantly. Always be seeking to increase 
in love. Well, how does love grow? What does love need? Look at the end of verse 9. It's by prayer that your love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge and all discernment. Now, our culture today talks a lot about love in all kinds of different forms and ways. But they don't talk about love with biblical knowledge and biblical discernment attached very frequently. And this is not just lovey-dovey feelings, the romantic love. This is, I, I, not, no, no, no. Let, let's think here. This love that abounds and abounds is an intelligent, knowing love. It is a love that is growing in knowledge. Knowledge of God. Knowledge of his character, his attributes. Knowledge of Jesus Christ, his grace, his person, his glory. Knowledge in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's role, how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Knowledge of the gospel. The height and width and length and depth that goes beyond our knowledge. Always growing in knowledge of God's word. His commandments. Why? Well, if you love someone truly, you're going to get to know them. And you're going to get to know them better and better. True love is never fully satisfied with how well love knows the other. The beloved is never known enough. Love grows in knowledge. We, we grow in knowledge of the God that we love and in all discernment. Oh man, this is important. Discernment. Being able to look at alternatives and see the real from the false. This is gold. This is fool's gold, right? This is, this is a real diamond. This is a false diamond. Uh, when it comes to how love is supposed to act in this world, we need discernment. Biblical discernment is in short supply today. It is very easy to get caught up in, a, in some kind of move, some kind of movement, some kind of thing. We get caught up in taglines and phrases, but we often don't think critically down to the bottom. What is it am I believing? What is it I am doing? What is it I am saying? Well, we need love that is abounding in knowledge and biblical wisdom, discernment. Why? Verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent. So we need love that has knowledge and all discernment so that we might approve what is excellent. Now I found the commentators so helpful here because they largely agreed with each other. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a good week when commentators agree with each other. That's a, I'm like, whew, okay, we're in good shape. I think I'm feeling safe about some of these things. So uh, th this was pretty much agreed upon. When it comes to this idea of, uh, of approving what is excellent, the idea is not about choosing between something good and something bad. Like, should I be, sh should I, should I be a painter or should I be a drug dealer? Okay, if, you're if you need discernment on that one, we could talk after the service, okay? We could point you in the right direction now. That's not what's going on here. Paul is talking about something far more difficult. When he says that you need knowledge and all discernment to approve what is excellent, he is not talking about choosing between what is morally right and morally wrong. That is assumed. Of course you need to do that. that that's, that's pretty basic. He said, no, no, what you got to do here is you've got, I mean, think about it. Every day, tomorrow, you will probably have moments where you could say any number of things to any number of people. You could text this person or that person. You could text these five people, 10 people, 20 people. You could be on the phone with someone for an hour, for 30 minutes. You could meet 
with, uh, for coffee with someone. You could spend more time with your kids, less time with your kids. You could spend more time with your spouse, less time with your spouse. You could spend more time at work, less time at work. You, could, you, you see what I'm saying? Every day there's 10,000 tiny decisions that we have to make. And some decisions are going to be morally neutral in, in a sense. It's not necessarily wrong to do A or B. But one option is going to be superior to another option. So it's not so much choosing between good and bad. It's choosing between good and best. Right? And, and that's a much harder kind of decision. So two people uh, ask you uh, to meet at the same time on the same day. And you can only do one or the other. That's more difficult, right? So you, you, you got to think about these decisions. And the way that we grow in this, no, I'm not going to solve all your decision-making problems. That would be amazing if I could. I cannot. But, but this is why we pray for it. But one of the things we need to do is we need priorities, right? Now, don't go to sleep when I say priorities. Like, Uh-oh, this sounds like a lecture. Hang on. Think about priorities. So when it, when it, say you're married with children. So you need to think, okay, given where I'm at in my stage of life, Given the amount of time my marriage needs, one-on-one, the amount of time and affection my children are going to need from me, and my work is going to need, what is the best option today, this week, this month, for prioritizing those relationships? That is not an easy thing to answer. There's not a textbook that says you need to do this for this many minutes and then this for this many. So we need to pray to God and soak ourselves in scripture and be surrounded by wise and godly people so that our priorities start to fall in place. And suddenly, okay, maybe the time I'm spending on entertainment, talking to myself here, there are moments I'm okay, this needs to be less prioritized and I need to spend more time with my kids during this time or whatever it may be. We need to be praying to the Lord for ourselves and for each other, that the Lord help our values and priorities to be clarified by His Word, rightly weighted in our minds and hearts, so that we can see more clearly, not just between good and bad, but between what is good and what is even better, and what is absolutely best, what is excellent. We, we need to do that, and that, that is going to be very hard. I should probably stop, but I'm going to keep going on this point just for another second. Um, this does not mean, by the way, that all downtime is evil. This does not mean it's a sin to veg out for a few minutes doing this or that. But we need to know ourselves. So you, you need to know, like, emotionally, am I at my breaking point emotionally this week? Okay, like, you're reaching a point where you just, you need time. And so we need to even know those things in our own self. Am I sleeping enough? Am I getting enough time in the Word? And we need to find those right priorities and try week by week, day by day, to ask for wisdom so that we can approve what is excellent and so love those around us, not just better, but as best as we possibly can. Continuing in verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So turn with me to the left to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The reason I'm turning here is Paul is writing this letter to another church, the Corinthians, but he talks about the Philippians in this letter. This is written before Philippians, as best we can tell. And Paul is saying... Okay, just real quick, I'm going to wrap up with this passage. When he says churches in Macedonia, the Philippian church is one of them. Everybody got that? Churches in Macedonia, Philippians, is, that's one of those churches in Macedonia. 
So we're going to sort of see all these things, the, the fellowship, God's work in their lives, and the fruitfulness. We're going to see all these points in the Philippian church right here as Paul describes what has happened in their lives to another church. So describing the Philippians to the Corinthian church. This is 2 Corinthians 8.1. Look at how this works out in real life. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. It's all from God's grace. That has been given among the churches in Macedonia, including Philippi. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, do you see that? The Philippians are going through a time of testing and trial, poverty. And what happens? Does their joy go down? No, their joy goes up. Their joy is, they've got huge joy during extreme poverty. These are strange people. I want to be more like this, okay? When times are tough, their joy is deep and wide and strong. So they have this incredible joy that's welling up like a spring, and they've got very little to give. They're, they're, they're impoverished. And what do they do? They take the tiny amount of resources that they have and the, the huge joy they have, and they overflow in generosity to other Christians. Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us, earnestly for the favor of taking part, that's the word fellowship, of the fellowship of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in, spe in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you. See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Now just stop here. So as we wrap up, think about this. The Philippians were marked by suffering in their fellowship in Christ, suffering and joy and poverty. And what came out of suffering Poverty and joy. What came out? A wealth of generosity on their part. They gave according to their means. In other words, they gave in a way that sort of made sense according to their means. And what? Beyond their means of their own choice, their own accord, begging us earnestly to be a part of this fellowship in taking care of other saints. Do you see? And so you see these things come together. And what ultimately underneath all of it was motivating them? Verse 9. This is at the bottom of their motivation. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I'm going to read that one more time. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become become rich. So for us as a church, what do we want? We want to fellowship together, partner together in pushing the gospel forward in Athens and ultimately around the world. We want to rely on God's grace to help us persevere in our faith, to help us grow and keep going, 
keep walking in our walk with the Lord Jesus. And we ultimately want fruitfulness, a love and joy that is abounding and overflowing, coming from the gospel, that is ultimately meeting the needs of others around us by the grace that God has worked in our lives. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I think about Paul's word, I always speak with thanksgiving when I think about you and all my prayers are filled with joy from the first day until now. God, for Paul, these other believers were not out of sight, out of mind. Paul had not seen the Philippians, no doubt, in months and months, if not years, and yet he had them in his heart. God, forgive me for the times that I have failed to pray for the members of this church, for our city, for our country, for our world. We desperately need the Lord Jesus. God, help us to intercede with thanksgiving before your throne for one another. When we're driving in the car, help us to turn the music off to turn the radio off, maybe turn the podcast off here and there and help us to pray. Help us to spend time when we're in the home, maybe doing some chores around the house to maybe turn off some of the entertainment and take some time to bring others in this room before your throne and to pray for them with thanksgiving some of the very things that Paul prayed for here in this passage. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for the fruit that I see in the lives of these members. Thank you for the fellowship that we have, the fellowship of the gospel. And help us to strive side side by side in unity for the sake of the glory of Jesus and for the advance of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.